Episode 89, Carbon Nanotubes. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. In his 1979 novel, Fountains of Paradise, Arthur C. Clarke imagines a cable stretching from the Earth's equator all the way to geosynchronous orbit. He called it a space elevator and imagined it would be constructed from continuous pseudo-one-dimensional diamond crystals. Bangalore-based NOPO Technologies is now commercially producing carbon nanotubes. Could this material one day be used to construct Clark's space elevator? Materials that offer high strength alongside low mass are highly sought after by the aerospace industry. In the past, it was aluminium, then titanium, and today carbon fibre. The new wave of materials, including graphene and carbon nanotubes, are allotrophs of carbon, same atomic structure, but differ in physical construction. NOPO Technologies was established in 2011 by Gadhada Reddy and is already commercially supplying carbon nanotubes to Japan and elsewhere. I started off by asking Gadhada the obvious question. What are carbon nanotubes? Carbon nanotubes are a form of carbon. They're an allotrope of carbon. We imagine them to be rolled up tubes of carbon that are incredibly small. What I do is to make these tiny tubes. Now, to get an idea of these dimensions... They're about 200,000 times smaller than a hair strand. And the tubes I make are just big enough to have one molecule of water inside them. That's how tiny they are. And also, nanotubes exhibit some incredible properties. They're extremely strong. They're lightweight. They're radiation resistant and are the ideal material for building space structures. When you said um, allotrophs, so what we are talking about is a form of carbon, a bit like diamonds or graphene. What's special about carbon that allows these types of structures uh, to be formed? And also, if you can just help us understand the difference between graphene, which was uh, uh, captured a lot of headlines just a few years ago, uh, and also carbon nanotubes. Are they not the same thing? Is a carbon nanotube a rolled-up version of graphene? Carbon is a very, very versatile material. Uh, almost all life on Earth is made of carbon for a reason. And that's because of its uh, high flexibility in creating multiple bonds. So it can create, uh, the, the, it can attach to itself and to other carbon atoms in very different ways. And this allows for the flexibility of creating materials that behave very differently. For example, graphite is incredibly smooth. It, it's soft, while diamond is incredibly hard. Both are made of just the same carbon atoms. Now, when it comes to nanotubes, it's one form of carbon in which the 
atoms are arranged in the form of single tubules. Now, when we think about materials, they've always uh, captured our attention, and especially carbon materials, because the sp2 bond that holds carbon atoms together is the strongest bond in nature. Mm-hmm. So that means we should be able to create very strong structures using that. And so theoretically, people had been talking about them. So the earliest version uh, that was used in science fiction was by Arthur C. Clarke uh-huh. uh, in his book called Fountains of Paradise, where he spoke about space elevators being built using diamond-like fibers. And uh, so these diamond-like fibers are what carbon nanotubes ultimately are, the finest form of carbon fibers we can ever make. So when it comes to graphene, graphene by definition has been known for the longest of times as a single sheet of carbon atoms. So we could imagine it to be like a chicken mesh wire that's used in the chicken coop, Mm -hmm. Uh, like the hexagonal structures with each nodes being carbon atoms. And one way to imagine nanotubes is indeed to fold up a graphene sheet. But in reality, that's not how nanotubes are formed. They have a very complex mechanism that's very different from the way we imagine it. And they, they exhibit major differences between them. Uh, like, for example, a sheet of carbon atoms in the form of graphene is a very good conductor. It does not exhibit any of these electronic properties. But carbon nanotubes, especially at these small sizes, they exhibit unique electrical properties. So the tubular structure acts as a like a water slide allowing what electrons or water molecules to flow through them. And they also exhibit the semiconducting properties, which makes them behave like silicon in the way electrons move through them. So you can make transistors and chips out of these. So that's the major difference they have. But uh, structurally, in imaginations, graphene and nanotubes are derived from each other. Just to be clear, um, allotrophs are atoms of carbon which are identical uh, in terms of their uh, internal atomic structure, whereas isotopes are, are not. They actually have variations in the number of neutrons in the, proto- in the nucleus. So an allotroph, uh, any carbon allotroph, has identical carbon atoms, and it's just the physical structures and how those atoms of carbon are arranged that makes allotroph of carbon, say carbon nanotubes, different from another, say, diamond. Is that right? That's correct. That's The kind of nanotube, carbon nanotubes that you make, can you just describe how, you said it's about 20,000 times smaller than human hair. So we are looking at a, a tube in terms of uh, the diameter in angstroms, it'd be about seven or eight angstroms. And h- how long would a nanotube that you make be? The, the nanotubes, they're indeed very tiny. Uh, with, uh, and I specialize in something called single-walled carbon nanotubes. Uh-huh. So single-walled carbon nanotubes are a single tubular structure. We also, there's a variety of nanotubes known as multi-wall, which is mostly like the Russian dolls with multiple tubes on top of each other. Uh-huh. Now, we chose the single walls because they're the most difficult to make. And uh, what's uh, beautiful about them is the diameters, uh, you're right, they have mean diameters of about 7 to 8 angstroms. And the lengths are between 7,000 to 8,000 angstroms. And uh, about uh, one about a micron in length is mm-hmm. what they get to. Uh, with such tiny diameters. And, and it's quite interesting you say that single-walled 
nanotubes are harder to make than multiple walled. I thought it would have been the other way around. Yeah, so the interesting thing is uh, with nanotech is when we try to make things more finer and finer, it just becomes harder and harder when you <laughs> that fineness. Right. So, uh, so uh, when we look at progression of uh, carbon fibers from one end, because carbon fibers are so well known. Uh-huh. Now, a carbon fiber has an approximate diameter of about seven microns, uh, and uh, or seventy thousand angstroms for comparison. Mm-hmm. And as we make carbon fibers finer and finer, we start getting car- multi-walled carbon nanotubes. And we make them even finer. That's when we start getting to the single-walled carbon nanotubes. So coming from a carbon fiber perspective, it's actually simpler to produce a larger diameter stuff than it is to produce a very small diameters. If I can just step back a bit, I remember years and years ago when carbon fiber badminton rackets were a big thing, a new thing. And carbon fiber is something we use in many physical products. Is it fair to assume that, you know, going back, oh, maybe a hundred years ago when aluminium was first introduced, that was strong and light. And then we had titanium, then we had carbon fiber. And now we're having things like graphene and carbon nanotubes. Um, is carbon fiber, it's just carbon, but structurally, how does its uh, structure differ uh, from graphene or carbon nanotubes? Ah, so that's, that's an interesting question. So carbon fibers by themselves are generally made from petroleum. Ah. So long molecules of, uh, of rayon and polyacronitol pan. It's one of the precursor that's used in a lot of clothing. Mm. So pan is burned off to create a carbon structure, which is then processed over several steps. So it is heated, it is added, uh, other chemicals added to stabilize it, and then it's drawn out to get a high strength and pro- provide in the form of fibers. Now, the starting point, uh, so the big difference between nanotubes and c- carbon fibers has to do with how we look at materials being made in nanotechnology. So we have two approaches. One is a bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. Another is a top-down approach. In a top-down approach, what we're doing is to to take something that's a bulk material and take away matter from it to make it smaller and smaller and smaller. So carbon fibers are made in that manner. So we start with something that's very big, uh, as in like a petroleum precursor, Mm-hmm. which is then broken down, uh, refined, 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 until we get to a structure, which is just a bunch of carbon atoms that have been heated and all other effluents removed from it. Now, when it comes to making nanotubes, we take the other approach. We, we take a bottom-up approach. So we take individual atoms of carbon, and we produce those individual atoms of carbon during the processing conditions. And these carbon atoms are assembled one by one, into the kind of structure we require. So that's why the processing differs considerably between carbon fibers and nanotubes. So we start from opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, trying to create these uh, structures. And as we try to make them of the same size with the same parameters, getting this ultimate control over the atoms becomes the challenge. And, and that's what I'd like to turn to next then. Petroleum has been around for quite some time, so making carbon fibers was 
uh, a challenge, but uh, I'm guessing it's nowhere near the challenge that you have to face when making carbon nanotubes. Can you just summarise how you make from scratch carbon nanotubes? Sure. So uh, at NOPO, we use a process called HIPCO. It stands for high-pressure carbon monoxide. It was invented by my co-founder, Dr. Kelly Bradley, along with the Nobel laureate, Dr. Richard Smalley. And what we do here is uh, we take uh, carbon monoxide as our main precursor gas. Uh-huh. Monoxide is one of the most popular industrial chemicals and is a precursor for a lot of plastics. Mm-hmm. And it's also an effluent produced during all kinds of iron processing and when we're converting pig iron into usable iron. Mm-hmm. And uh, so monoxide, uh, we, we take it inside reactors that we designed and built. Uh, and these systems, they heat up the gases to a high temperature. So we go up to temperatures of the order of 1,000 degrees under extremely high pressures. So we approach about 100 atmospheres in pressure. Mm. And the challenge here is that you need to heat uh, a gas that is highly corrosive at higher temperatures to three times the temperature at which a human body can vaporize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we need to pressurize it <laughs> to uh, the pressure equivalent of, of a kilometer of water. And so under these conditions, uh, what happens is that the gases are, like they're just ready to break down because you have so much energy being put inside them. Mm-hmm. And we inject tiny particles of iron. So we send them in a liquid form into the system at room temperature Mm -hmm. by forming a complex of iron atoms. And so these atoms, as they approach the system, we give them a thermal shock. So what we do here is to take them from room temperature all the way to a thousand degrees Mm -hmm. in a fraction of a second. And this reaction is so rapid and the amount of energy dumped into the iron particles is so high mm-hmm. that it just rips out and forms single atoms of iron. And we provide them a small amount of time to agglomerate them into a tiny cluster. And this cluster is actually a catalyst particle. And if we produce all of these clusters of the same size, they would then start breaking down the carbon-containing gas, or the carbon monoxide, into single atoms of carbon. And so now you are in a boiling cauldron, high temperatures, high pressures, carbon atoms, and iron atoms providing catalysts to break down the carbon atoms from mm-hmm. the gas. Mm-hmm. And these carbon atoms are the only stable form that can exist are the nanotubes. And so that's why we go for these extreme conditions. And then they start mixing and they start getting, uh, and they start forming the tubular structure. So we have a high flow of gas to the system. The iron particles are being pulled out by the gas. And as they move out, the carbon atoms start assembling behind them. Uh That's how the tubular structure is formed. And the high flow just pulls them out in like a straight stream. Uh And we keep heating up the gases so that any defects present on the nanotubes are removed. So they're all smoothed out into nicer tubes. And by the time they come out, uh, the gases are cooled down. And then we capture these nanotubes and filters and then we re- and one of the contaminants produced in the whole process is carbon dioxide is then removed from the system right uh, and the best part is we have to use um, systems similar to what's used for removing carbon dioxide in space systems for for our work and so then the gases are cleaned up and we send it back into the systems we don't dump anything to the atmosphere <laughs> it's kind of 
pretty green. So what I'm visualizing from what you've said there is that you introduce some atoms of iron at one end and they go through this thermal shock from room temperature to a thousand degrees inside the fabrication vessel and then they form into iron uh, clusters of iron atoms and as they move through this carbon monoxide at very high temperature and very high pressure they are acting like a catalyst and they break down the carbon monoxide and what they form in their wake are structures of atomic carbon, which are these carbon nanotubes. That's correct. And when you, you start off with carbon monoxide, why carbon monoxide? Why don't you use carbon dioxide? And then you can help with the problem of uh, carbon dioxide uh, increases in, the, in our in- environment. Do you have, is it possible to use carbon dioxide in this process? Yes, uh, indeed. That's a very good question, Gurbe. So, in fact, uh, one of the main reasons for choosing to work with monoxide uh, has been that it's easy to produce monoxide from carbon dioxide. So, if we were to heat uh, any carbon-containing material mm-hmm. uh, with carbon dioxide, we end up producing carbon monoxide. Uh, so, And that's also like a popular way of producing this gas. Mm-hmm. And our long-term vision was that when we go conquer space and get into Mars and all of these places where there's a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, this would be an ideal way of producing, converting that into nanotubes and using them. And converting carbon dioxide into monoxide is straightforward. There are catalysts available that can perform that. So that uh, that is not as big a challenge as converting the monoxide into the nanotubes. And this process, this HIPCO, high-pressure carbon monoxide process that you indicated was a process that was identified by uh, one of your colleagues, is, is that um, unique? Is it is it patented? Yes. So HIPCO has had uh, multiple versions. Mm-hmm. So the first version that was built uh, by my co-founder at Rice University was patented, uh-huh. and the patents did expire last year. Mm-hmm. But what we have done at NOPOR is we went beyond uh, the patents. We developed a completely new class of systems that were more stable and could operate for much longer. That's been the major difference that exists. And uh, so the new systems have been protected by trade secrets mm-hmm. and as proprietary systems. Here's a very serious question. It might sound a bit daft, but... If you've got these um, special apparatus where, which can generate very high pressure and sustain very high temperatures, that's the kind of environment that diamonds are formed deep down in the Earth's crust. Could your manufacturing process create diamonds? Ah, so <laughs> at, at this point, uh, so the diamonds, they require even tougher conditions. Right. And so at this point, we do not get that. We not get to such uh, massively high pressures. Ah. So diamonds at this point, no, we do not. Uh, with nanotubes, definitely yes. <laughs> I was just cu- curious. So in terms of um, now, I've seen this uh, in your uh, offices in Bangalore. You have um, what I describe as torpedo tubes. <laughs> Very large cylinders where you manufacture 
the carbon nanotubes. Um, how long does it take from, let's say, you wanted to make some carbon nanotubes today, how long would it take the whole process for you to introducing the iron particles in the, initially to the end process of actually harvesting the carbon nanotubes at the other end? Uh, so the reactions are almost instantaneous as soon as we inject the particles we start getting nanotubes forming on them. Mm-hmm. So right now, uh, under optimized conditions, we produce, so each reactor we have produces between 0.3 to 0.4 grams of nanotubes every hour. And uh, so what we have done is to replicate the system to produce more of this material. And for us, the main concern and main focus has been around maintaining the quality of the material for the longest uh, duration possible, Mm -hmm. because that's been the biggest challenge and drawback that's held back nanotube adoption in a big way in applications, and hence the complete focus around the quality rather than the quantities. And and that's quite an interesting uh, thing you said there, 0.3 or 0.4 grams. Now, it may not sound very much, but uh, again, from my memory of those um, carbon fiber badminton rackets, I remember how light they were, incredibly light compared to what I'd been used to. So although th- this doesn't sound a great deal in terms of quantity, that's another feature of uh, carbon nanotubes is the very low mass in addition to uh, how they handle pressure, thermal and ele- electrical conductivity, and indeed resistance against um, uh, radiation. So the fact that they weigh very little, that's a very important aspect for space applications, no? True. So nanotubes, uh, their apparent density is incredibly low. They can go as low as 0.1 grams per centimeter cube. Uh, and the actual density when compressed together can be about 1 to 1.5 grams per centimeter cube. So they're incredibly light in weight, almost add no mass. And when we produce them, uh, we have bottles where you just have a gram of material which occupies just so much of area. Uh, it's almost like one of these uh, miraculous substances that uh, you mentioned Arthur C. Clarke wrote about in Fountains of Paradise. It, it's coming to reality now. So let me talk about the applications. Can you give me some examples of uh, where your carbon nanotubes have been have been used and, and wider uh, applications of carbon nanotubes, particularly with a focus on aerospace? With nanotubes, we've been playing around with them too, just uh, for fun at times, evaluating new applications and new products. So one use case, like there are quite a few of them in the aerospace applications. One of them is as a black coating, which has been popularized by Vanta Black and Surrey Nanosystems which are these coatings that go on surfaces of components, especially the baffles for star trackers, mm-hmm. to give an optically black surface. Uh, and this in turn acts as a GPS for interplanetary missions to enable a spacecraft to determine its position very accurately. Mm-hmm. So the black coatings act as dark tubes that allow the, the camera to just look in the direction above it instead of getting any kind of interference. And so these, we've been working with the Indian Space Research Organization, testing out these components. And we've gotten to the space qualification of them, and they're still being evaluated for future missions. Another interesting application of the nanotubes is on composite bodies and composite surfaces. 
as a lightning protection. It can be used as a highly conductive surface for lightning protection. Mm -hmm. So one project we have is with Lockheed Martin, in which we are evaluating the nanotubes for their performance as a lightning conductor, as against a metal mesh. So this goes mostly on fighter or jet aircraft and commercial aircraft and windmills, mm. improves the conductivity of the surface so that they can sink in massive amounts of current. And this massive, uh, so this enables a huge amount of weight saving, So which, is, which we estimate as between 500 kgs to a ton. So that adds a lot of value to the end user, increased payload in, or increased weapons pay. And so that's one interesting application of them. And people have also used them as uh, radar absorption coatings because of their excellent microwave absorption properties. Just going back to the previous point, you said it can reduce the weight uh, when used in aircraft or windmills, reduce the weight by 500 or kilograms per ton? No, so it was uh, so on one a jet aircraft, uh, like a, a single fighter jet would have a weight saving of between 500 kilos to a ton. I understand now. Thank you for that. And that's quite significant. We'll not only reduce the um, the weight and complexity in the building, but in terms of operationally, I'm sure it will reduce the uh, cost of fuel uh, because of the re reduced mass over its lifetime too. Fascinating. So in terms of um, Opo's work uh, in space, uh, are there any specific projects that you're involved in that you can tell us about uh, using your nanotubes? Yeah, so we are uh, working with a few startups, mostly working on creating these black surfaces for engines for heat dissipation. So that's one project that is in talks and will be initiated soon. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to the other applications, we have been developing newer elements to go inside composites for spacecraft. So what we're doing is to create strain sensors from carbon nanotubes mm -hmm. so that these can be embedded inside composites to provide continuous health monitoring of these structures. So this becomes quite essential when we get into space, when you have micrometeorites striking aircraft. So because we'll know instantly when there's any kind of a damage and have countermeasures prepared to fix those and to ensure that there's no catastrophic failures of the systems. So that's something uh, we are working on. And uh, so, so specifically, anything that's going into space in the next couple of months, there's nothing of that sort happening with our <laughs> carbon nanotubes right now. Micrometeorites are quite a serious hazard for particularly for human spaceflight. Um, so when in space, you mentioned that carbon nanotubes, uh, if I can use the term radiation hardened in, in the sense that they are not damaged as easily as other materials. Is it possible to construct maybe multiple layers of carbon nanotubes and form some form of um, uh, a barrier or a protection against micrometeorites? Yep, so that, that would be uh, feasible. So what's uh, an exciting material that exists uh, right now and is used a lot on missile cones and on a few specialized structures of spacecraft and space shuttles has been these carbon-carbon composites. Mm -hmm. They are just made of pure carbon, and it's funny that when we look at them under electron microscopes, 
we find nanotube and graphene structures inside them. And these carbon, then the ones that have the nanotube and graphene structures are the ones that exhibit very good tensile properties. And that's definitely the ultimate material because it's very light. It does not have any kind of flexing. It exhibits high modulus. And it can also exhibit a high tensile stem when it has the nanotubular structures inside it. And so that uh, is something I see uh, as an exciting material going forward to be used on all vehicles. And that could protect them from these damages. And where I see nanotubes being used is from their uh, multifunctional properties to act as a sensing element while providing this enhanced strength and properties. When I had a look around your premises, I saw two instruments. I don't get to see these things firsthand, so I was quite uh, uh, intrigued by them. You have a Raman spectrometer, and also from, I'm guessing, quite a few years ago, uh, a West German electron microscope. So can you just tell me how you uh, use those two instruments in your fabrication process? When it comes to analyzing nanotubes, it's important for us to know the quality uh, and before we go for any further processing. So one way we determine quality of the nanotubes is to go for the Raman spectrum. So what happens here is we take a laser beam, a green laser beam with a wavelength of 532 nanometers. And when we impinge it on the nanotubes, it starts vibrating these carbon bonds. Mm -hmm. And the carbon bonds then send back a signal. And so this uh, is then sent to a spectrometer, broken down, and seen, and this gives, it says the signal we get is a signature for each material. And carbon nanotubes have their own unique signature. And so this can be used for analyzing how the nanotubes are, what diameters are present, and what kind of defects are present on the system. And the whole test takes just 30 seconds. So we have an instantaneous confirmation of what we have on hand. And this stage, the... Um same instrument, would it be able to tell you if you've got single-walled nanotubes and or multiple-walled nanotubes? Indeed. Uh, it, it can show us that uh, through the plots we start observing. And we can also see if we have graphene or any other form of carbon too, because each has a slightly different signature and that's readable through the instrument. That's, that's interesting. So your instruments, if you wanted to, could you make graphene with them as well? With the machines, yes, we could. And uh, we, we could make the single-layer graphene because we have all the furnaces oh. and all the stuff required for doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, the end objective is we wanted to create something practical and useful getting, up, getting us up there into space. And we felt that uh, by trying to make too many materials and just diluting our expertise, we'd not create anything completely. And so decide to stick with one and yeah. take it all the way to the end. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the electron micros microscope, how do you use that? Uh, so the electron microscope gives us a visual confirmation of what we have produced. So what it does is it has a resolution of 0.4 angstroms, or 0.4 nanometers, sorry, 4 angstroms. And so it lets us uh, look at individual nanotubes resolve them and see what's present in them. We can also see the iron particles on the nanotubes. And that gives us more ideas for optimizing the process uh, and to get a, an actual verification and see what we have produced because otherwise they're invisible to the naked eye. And normally we need to zoom in 
at least a two mil two hundred thousand to about two million times just to be able to see the narratives we have produced, and this gives us that superpower to see the super tiny things. So, in both cases, the Raman spectrometer and the electron microscope, you're using them both for quality control for the final product, as well as research and development for uh, ongoing work. That's correct. And and I must ask you, on the electron microscope, it says West Germany. So how did you get to acquire that electron microscope? Ah, so electron microscopes are actually super expensive. Usually they retail for millions of dollars. Uh-huh. And I wanted to have an electron microscope because I, I knew that that's one of the essential components I would require for looking, getting a quick peek at the nanotubes. So I've been looking for it for a really long time. I've been looking at labs that could give me access to one. And it turned out that one fine day, the U.S. Department of Agriculture decided to sell their electron microscope because they couldn't find anyone to operate the microscope. And I felt that was a very good opportunity mm-hmm. and uh, got to bid and uh, got the electron microscope ultimately. And it, was a, it was quite cheap when I got it. But then we couldn't. Since the, uh, then we once we got the instrument, we realized why they were selling it off because they couldn't find an operator. <laughs> it just had so many dials, right. and so many things had to happen at the right order. So instead, what we ended up doing was uh, to get our alignments right. We worked on the microscope ourselves because we built the reactors, and those were like super complex with a lot of different technologies that had to be used inside them. So this felt a little easier on the eye when looking at it. And we just wrote up our own software, plugged it in, and we're able to get it up and running and have been taking images since. And and where did you buy it from? And what platform? Uh, How did you acquire uh, it? So, uh, I, I used uh, eBay, <laughs> the friendly eBay for getting all of the complex instruments. <laughs> It's amazing what you can buy on eBay, electron microscope. <laughs> Terrific. Lovely story. Okay. NOPO Technologies. Uh, just tell us, why is it called NOPO? Uh, so I started NOPO eight years ago. And before this, this was uh, a childhood dream. So I wanted to make nanotubes since I was 12 or 13. So I've been pursuing it since then. And all of my education, my studies in engineering, and my master's in nanotechnology were all because of this one reason. And soon after college, I told people that I wanted to make carbon nanotubes and that I was going to start a company to make them. And and I was going to use the HIPCO process for attempting to make them. And people said that I must be joking and I'm delusional <laughs> and this is never going to happen. <laughs> and so th- that was a constant reference so of be, be it the government or be it the science development boards or be it my professors and people that I could speak with. And so that just became a common refrain. And I I knew that at one point I was going to make things happen because I believe uh, that if we are focused and if we can put the right efforts, then things can be realized. And so the long-term idea was that we definitely make nanotubes. And that day I wanted to have the last laugh. And... So since everyone was telling that it's going to be impossible and it's not possible to create things, I just named the company as Not Possible with NOPO. <laughs> and the domain name was there too. <laughs> that was quite handy. <laughs> you set this company up in 2011. 
Um, can you just summarize your journey so far and where you're at with this to date? In my mind, the company was divided into three phases. The first phase was all about making carbon nanotubes and figuring out how to make them in a repeatable manner. That was the main challenge, and that was what had to be addressed in the first place. So this took us uh, quite some time to even get to our first nanotubes. And once we got, and this took about three years to just get our first strands of nanotubes. And from there, we worked upon improving the system, improving the efficiency of the process, and getting to a very high repeatability ultimately leading to the nanotubes being declared as the number one in dispersibility on the planet. And this was two months ago at the nanotube conference held in Germany mm-hmm. by one of our Japanese researchers. So, uh, and we've, we've achieved the point of producing really good carbon nanotubes. And this leads the way to our second phase of operations and growth, which is about uh, bringing these applications of carbon nanotubes into people's hands. And our current focus is all around that. So we've been working on a a business model wherein we make the nanotubes and we work with major companies to help customize nanotubes for each of the applications. For example, the lightning protection or as uh, filtration membranes for the Navy and some of these very, very interesting applications in carbon fibers and stuff uh, for another unnamed company. So these uh, so this way we customize and provide the solution that can be utilized and to improve performance of the material. So that's how we're going about things right now. And uh, ultimately, what we're looking at is a massive growth coming in uh, to us. And the big reason for that is when it comes to nanotubes, the HIPCO nanotubes are the most widely studied. They have more than 13,000 hits when you search for them on Google Scholar. So when it comes to creating prototypes, these are ideal. It's just out there and any prototype for any kind of application, we can make that happen within 24 hours. And so that gives a huge advantage. And so the next couple of years are going to be getting them into a lot of applications and getting them ultimately into people's hands everywhere. And when we have done this, so this phase would take about seven years. And 26, 27, 2026, 2027 mm-hmm. is when we get into our next phase and we start building massive structures using nanotubes. Besides Nopo, how many other companies are making carbon nanotubes in, in India? Uh, so in India, when it comes to making nanotubes, uh, I'm not aware of any other company. There are quite a few companies that sell carbon nanotubes, though. So they sell the multi-wall nanotubes, and quite a few of them sell single-wall carbon nanotubes, but they almost always sell our nanotubes using their brand names. So oh. when it comes to manufacturing, it's very, very few. And you mentioned uh, just now Japanese researchers, and earlier you mentioned the work you're doing with Lockheed Martin. Can you mention any other uh, companies or organizations or indeed governments that uh, you are providing uh, carbon nanotubes right now? Yeah, so we have provided nanotubes to the Indian Space Research Organization and uh, we are working with the Indian Navy for using them on submarines through something called the IDEX and DISC and we provided nanotubes to several laboratories so in Japan, AIST uses the material and we ship commercial samples to a few corporations in Japan that work on carbon Mm -hmm. 
and uh, also a lot of universities in Canada and in the US make use of these nanotubes for their research activities. I noticed the the vision statement you mentioned right at the beginning. Uh, you making want to make space accessible. Is that where you think the future of not just um, NOPO, but generally that carbon nanotubes will be the stuff that makes spacecraft generally within Earth orbit and beyond. Is that your vision to have pretty much everything that goes up into space have some aspects of carbon nanotubes in them? Yes, indeed. And uh, where I see nanotubes making a big difference uh, when it comes to materials and structures is today if we look at rockets that take humans into space. So these ha are allowed to have a massive failure rate. For example, the rockets going to the space station can have one failure for every 500 launches, and that's accepted to be a mandated rocket. The Apollo missions, they accepted two failures for every 100 launches. So that is simply not viable for commercial exploitation. Like, why would anyone want to go to space if you're going to die on the 100th trip, for sure? And so the only way for us to change that is if we have lighter and stronger materials, get better payload capacities with what we have to improve the safety drastically and to provide the user with a much more reliable way of getting into space so that they're always protected and safe. And this potential exists for carbon nanotubes uh, because of their unique properties, and they, they just seem to be the material that's ideal, ideally made for space. And so hence the exploitation of nanotubes that I've started with NOPO. And in the future, I, I do believe and strongly foresee a day when we'd be building out massive structures with the nanotubes and carbon being the main uh, element of leading these efforts. And that's the direction that we are entering towards. And uh, another area that kind of has seen nanotubes make big differences has been science fiction, where most structures that make a huge difference have always been carbon. And then there's nature giving the support through its, by providing the highest uh, energy and highest strength between bonds that nature can ever create that also exists with carbon. So it just is a no-brainer for me that this should be the material and this will be the material that will be building up all of the creations that will help humanity to be a spacefaring species. Galhada Reddy, CEO of NOPO Technologies, thank you very much for sharing your exciting journey so far, and it looks like it's going to be a fascinating and exciting journey to come in the next few years, so I'll keep an eye on how you're progressing. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Gurbhaya. Appreciate it. Thanks you so much.